You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me by social distancing technology is my co-hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Paul, hi. Hello, I'm in the studio, and you're at home recovering. I'm still at home, still stuck here, still recovering, but I'm feeling a lot better than two weeks ago when we talked. Are you good? Um, I was devastated to not be a part of uh, episode 100. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for you with that. But you were shedding virus. Yeah. Well, I was shedding virus and shedding tears. So there you go. (laughs) You you missed out. Uh, I did miss out. You know, but like everything that we're missing out on now, there will be another day. Uh, One of the things I always found when I got depressed, um, particularly in university, is I always imagined that, you know, there will be a better day. There have been good days in the past, and I was glad to be around for those good days, and there will be good days in the future. So I'm optimistic, despite the many interesting journeys we're going to have over the next few years. Yes. Um, But, you know, it's, it's still sad to miss a milestone. It is sad. It was uh, it was a sad milestone. So uh, and, last week, and I've missed yeah. uh, or I'm missing you interviewing two of our most uh, popular guests. Yes, I've already conducted the interviews. I'll let you uh, introduce our first one. Um, the um, I enjoyed both of the interviews, and maybe we can talk about the things I learned afterward. Uh, not on the podcast, maybe on the podcast. But you can go ahead and start with the introduction of the first of the two guests. You know who? Are, well, do you know who our guests are? I know who our guests are, okay, and I right. mean, they're also, you know, friends and colleagues and friends just all-around fantastic people yeah. and friends of the podcast. So. Um, but our first guest is the ever-popular Eric McGracken, um, who is the multi-clobby uh, award-winning blogger, author of the BC Injury Law blog at bc-injury-law.com. Um, and he's going to be talking to us about all sorts of developments in the area of personal injury law. Let's get to Eric. Okay, um, so we've got our first guest on the podcast today is Eric McGracken. Eric is a most renowned, probably best known personal injury lawyer in British Columbia. His popular, uh, his popular blog is the first thing that most injury lawyers in BC read when they wake up in the morning and uh, to keep themselves abreast of everything and every student at UBC who's interested in negligence and injury law is on his blog all the time. I welcome once again friend of the podcast Eric McGracken. Hi Eric. Hey Paul thanks for having me on. I'm gonna get big-headed with that kind of introduction. Well you know I'm your fan so you gotta expect that introduction. Thanks Paul. So how are you managing in uh, Victoria and in Quasi-isolation or semi-isolation? Or? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're basically operating, uh, I, I'd say, a good portion of our staff is working remotely, and we've got full distancing protocols in place and just trying to, you know, just trying to keep things going in these wild times. I guess law firms were declared an essential service and just trying to, just trying to you know, navigate this modern landscape. We're doing, How are things on your end, Paul? We're doing everything over the phone. We have no yeah. clients coming in. 
Um, there's no need for any clients really to come in. We can, we can deal with a lot of it over the phone. And in the last decade anyway, I started doing things like initial consultations and everything over the phone to start with, and people are quite comfortable with it. You know, it's not something, when you and I articled back in the same firm, we would never do that. We always, you know, got the person on the phone, invited them to come in for a meeting so they could sit down and size us up, and we could size up their case and, and go from there. I found clients are more than happy just to deal with it over the phone now. So Yeah, you know, if anything, they, they seem to prefer it. And over, over the last 10 years, I've uh, just acquired so much business through my online presence, and many, many clients are comfortable uh, with phone-based business and email-based business. And so it is amazing how much you can get done with, uh, you know, without the need for constant face-to-face -face meetings. And I think the legal profession is going to learn that lesson that you and I have learned a while ago. Well, yeah, I think it's also got to do with people just wanting you to cut to the chase. You know, part of the issue for us back then was we didn't want to quote a fee over the phone because we were we thought it would scare people away. Um, you know, we didn't want to tell them what it, their case could potentially cost over the phone. And what I found is people just want to know. You tell them, and then they can deal with it. Okay, well, this is what I got to deal with, and you know, let's go ahead. Rather than spending, you know, coming in, uh, spending an hour with you before you finally get to the punchline, you know. So. Oh, yeah, no, I agree. Time's precious, and, and you're absolutely right. People want, want you to cut to the chase, and then they can decide what they got to do. So you've got on your uh, blog, I was reading this last, uh, of course, this is, you know, I've had time to read these things. Um, uh, a recent case where a lawyer left her firm, and there was a dispute about, disbursements and this was fascinating for me because you know of course lawyers come and go um, that's actually part of a, a country music song that Kyla and I sang that we still haven't recorded the video for <laughs> but uh, lawyers come and go and uh, of course you have to sort that out and in this case she wanted all of the money basically from the trust or how, how did she want to do this she didn't want to pay the disbursements when she yeah. left yeah, you know, it was an interesting case because this issue does come up. You're right, lawyers do come and go. And and the business of law, personal injury law particularly, is you know, sometimes very expensive. And so here's a lawyer that left her firm. The reasons don't really get into why. don't know if the you know, lawyer was told to move on or if she did so willingly or, or what the circumstances are. But the lawyer had a large um, number of active personal injury Files and the firm financed those files. You know, in this business, in the personal injury business, be it car crashes or otherwise, normally not only does the lawyer work on contingency, meaning they're paid at the end, but they finance the case themselves. So if there's court filing fees or hearing fees, jury fees, expert reports, clinical records, any of those kinds of things, the law firm usually fronts those disbursements and then recovers those on the back end when the claims are resolved. And so, in this so it's basically case, a loan rather than the client having to pay it. The yeah, law firm yeah. pays it to be able to facilitate the litigation. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and it's just, you know, it's a competitive business. And so most lawyers in this realm operate that way because if you don't, there's somebody else who will. And so firms generally cover these disbursements on their client's behalf. And, you know, a loan is a good way to look at it, uh, but it's a file-specific loan. And so in this recent case, the lawyer moved on, and a lot of her clients wanted to move on with her, as they're allowed to do. 
but the lawyer didn't want to pay the disbursements on the files, just wanted the files to be transferred, and the court was asked to you know, weigh in on the issue because the firm exercised a lien and said, look, you could have these files, but there's work product in here, and the disbursements do need to be paid before we transfer them over. And the court was asked to decide what should happen, and basically, I'm going to paraphrase here, but the court basically said, look, you can't expect your old employer to finance your new business. If you're going to take the files over, you need to pay for those disbursements. Otherwise, I'm not going to order those files to be transferred. And this isn't just sort but that's of a the, that's story. the practice, right? Like, that's what everybody has done for the longest time. When I left my old firm, you know, we sorted all of that stuff out. We sat down and came up with an agreement to resolve it all. Yeah, and, you know, ideally... They, they couldn't resolve it in this case? I mean... Yeah, you know, apparently not, because otherwise they wouldn't be in court. But well, but you're right, you know, resolving it, you know, ahead of time is, is the ideal move. But, you know, I was going to say, this, this case goes beyond a lawyer moving firms. It's no different than any client firing their lawyer. So if you have a lawyer, and for whatever reason you're not happy with them and you choose to move on, you need to pay your old firm the disbursements on the file and then come up with some sort of an arrangement of how the fees are going to be shared when the you know when the claim finally does resolve in the sure because you've got the firm's got a bunch of work in into it into the file long before it's settled well that's right yeah they put in you know countless hours and so the lawyers usually have to come to an agreement amongst themselves as to what a fair split of the final fee is because the client only pays one fee it doesn't matter if you have one lawyer you go through five firms you're going to pay one single contingency fee for all that work and in cases where there's been multiple firms on the file the lawyers need to get together and decide who contributed how much to that final result and if they can't sort it out the courts will settle the issue for them but but leaving fees aside on the disbursement issue when a client moves on to a new firm the old firm need not transfer the file until the disbursements are paid. And technically, it's the client that needs to pay it because it's, it's an arrangement between the lawyer and the client. But the new firm, of course, will pay that out for the file to be transferred over. That's business as, as usual. But here, you have a case where, I forget the number, it was something like 50 or 58, so. 58, I think. 58, yeah. You know, that sounds right. 58 files are being transferred at once. And the court said, look, if you want those files, you have to pay for them yourselves but but you know the overall lesson there is you could switch lawyers but if your old lawyer hasn't been paid for the for the disbursements to date you do need to pay for those for the file to be transferred over otherwise things get stalled out a little bit but yeah that was that was a sort of interesting case and i liked how to the point the court was in resolving that dispute well i like the fact that the court just referred to like the decades and decades and decades of practice uh the way that we've done it uh you, you know you you leave your firm that's fine, uh, but when you leave your firm, you can't expect your firm to transfer all the money that's been brought in and, you know, or transfer the file without getting paid for the money that's been spent on it um, when it's leaving the door. Otherwise, basically, what are you doing? You're, 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 you're getting the benefit of, of, the, of the free work and you're essentially just taking the money that they've spent into the file, all the capital that they've yeah. invested into it. No, that's so, right. Yeah, I mean, they, she wanted some. She wanted some different structure, uh, but why depart from the structure that we know works? And also, um, you know, why disadvantage the firm you're leaving? No, that's right. And, and, and you, know, you only have the file because you were at that firm. You know, so yeah, presumably, you, you know, maybe the lawyer was a good rainmaker and, and brought the files yeah. on on their own, and then wanted to. Um, 
you know, have a more substantive share of the ultimate fees on it. I don't know the details, but the court the court puts it very well here. The court basically says, look, this this petitioner is asking the court to compel the former employer to fund their new practice, and I'm not prepared to do so. So that sort of, you know, that sends the message loud and clear, like, look, if you if you move on and files follow you, that's great, but just be prepared to fund them. That that's the that's the way it works. That's the way it's always worked, and that's you know, I think it's a good result here. Yeah, makes sense. It's probably though um, difficult for the person setting up the new practice to come up with the money. Uh, that's something I think you got to factor in if you're a lawyer and you decide to leave the firm you're at. You got to factor in the fact that you cannot expect, um, <laughs> you know, that you cannot expect that that benefit, uh, and that you've got to have the money to be able to pay those disbursements in order to do it. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, a lot of firms well, finance it, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the reality is, being an employer comes. With with its pros and its cons, and in, in, in you know modern times, some of those cons are very apparent to a lot of small businesses out there. But it's not all roses and shun, you know sunshine running a firm and, and financing a firm and running these practices. But you know that that case just speaks to some of the business realities behind the personal injury practice. I remember when I left my old firm, um, I sat down with my employer. I warned him months in advance, and then I gave him two weeks notices and he asked me to stay a month and I thought to myself you know what and I told him you're not going to want me here a month trust me you will not want me here a month <laughs> you'll be happy to have me here for a week or two to to uh, deal with everything but you won't want me here a month but I thought you know what you've got a lot invested in in each one of these files just to get that client through the door because yeah. at the time you know advertising you recall we were spending ten thousand dollars a month on phone book ads this is 20 years ago <laughs> Oh, geez, I uh, remember that, actually, when yeah. Brian told me the cost of all those yellow page ads. I couldn't believe how much business had to be turned over just to break even. And I thought about it. Yeah, I know. It just makes me sick that spending that much money, that much of your client's money going toward your advertising cost. The Internet, thankfully, changed all that. But, the, um, the uh, you know, as I sat down and looked at every one of those files, and I thought, you know what? Every one of these files has this much money invested in advertising. Um, and then, of course, you know, we've got to go through that whole intake and get them through the door and everything. And I came up with a, a split um, to split the fees that took that all into account because I wanted to make sure that he got the benefit of that. It wasn't fair, in my view, for me to to uh, to walk with the file. And it could have been different, and we could have, you know, argued about every file. Uh, instead, we basically spent an hour <laughs> and went through them all. And sorted them out, and it was good. There was like 120 files came with me, uh, and we had an agreement even with files that I had worked on after that I worked on that that didn't remain. Uh, he sent me a check every few months, and on the files that I build out, I sent him a check every few months, and we had a nice accounting thing going, and it was actually quite good. Everybody was um, was satisfied in the end. It's like a friendly divorce, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Sorted it out and good for you. Sat down. Well, I, I, I approached him in the office. I can tell you it was nerve-wracking because I walked into him and I said, you know, we, we got to talk. It's time for me to move on and do my own thing. And uh, that was that was hard. That was hard. But to end up in litigation would have been much worse in any event. We weren't two people who were interested in litigation, that's for sure. As you recall, he's a pretty decent, easygoing guy. Um, 
Now, now, if Kyla was here, she'd remind us that we have to be talking about driving law, Paul, instead of our oh. stroll down memory lane. Sorry, yes, she law. would. So, do you have another driving law one you want to talk about? Uh, I don't know. Here, I'm just going to go through the blog here, and uh, we've got this is your this is your monthly. It's supposed to be monthly that you're on with Kyla, but of course, Kyla's at home with coronavirus. So, yeah, just just wild, wild times right now, and. and yeah, this actually seems like another lifetime ago before the virus took over everything, but the government introduced yet another bill looking to limit expert evidence when it comes to personal injury claims, but only in the car crash context. So you might recall last year they overhauled the B.C. Supreme Court rules and said there's going to be a hard cap. If it's a car crash case, you get one expert. For fast-track cases and for others, you could have three. That's it. So it doesn't matter if you need four or five, you get three. That's that's the end of it. And that got struck down as being unconstitutional. Uh, and the government's at it again. They've introduced a bill. Uh, I'm just going to look it up here so I get the number right. Evidence Amendment Act of 2020, it's called Bill 9. And Bill 9's introduced. It's passed first or second reading before the legislature was derailed by by the virus and they're looking to do it again so instead of a rule amendment they're amending legislation saying writing it for car crash, yeah for car crash cases you're going to have one to three experts depending on the complexity of it but uh, the way they're trying to save it is they give the court discretion to allow more experts and that's probably going to let the rule fly if it gets passed into law but the other thing they've done here is they they basically said the minister can, by order, cap recoverable disbursements. And in the government press release, when they were selling this legislation, they told the public that their goal is to cap disbursements at 5% of recovery. So if you have a case that's worth $100,000 because you're severely injured and you have losses and you're awarded $100,000, you could only have $5,000 worth of disbursements to prove your case. And if you had to spend more than that to prove your case, too bad, you're on the hook for that. Wow. That doesn't sit well with folks when I explain it to them, but what makes it really arbitrary is it only applies to these ICBC cases. So, So if you're injured in an assault, a battery, a slip and fall, whatever, uh, you can sue and you could present your case and you could present the evidence you need. And if you succeed, it's recoverable. But if it's an ICBC case, there's this artificial cap the government's coming up with. And I imagine that's going to... That's really dirty because they're just trying to basically limit the the evidence you can get in to prove your case to (laughs) reduce the amount that you're going to ultimately be able to collect. Well, well, that's uh, and, right. And basically kneecap you in, in trying to get that evidence and discourage you from getting the evidence that shows the extent of your actual damage. Well, you're right. You have a hard choice to make. You either don't present all the evidence that you need and jeopardize your judgment, or you present all the evidence you do need, but know that you're going to have to you know, basically lose out of your own pocket from your past wage loss or whatever other damages you recover, these disbursements to have your day in court. And that doesn't seem fair. It's being done to assist really only one litigant, which is ICBC. You've got this government monopoly insurance company, and there's being, you know, there's laws being passed to handicap the justice system in their favor. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think if, if the government actually goes through with this change, they'll be facing... You know, another constitutional challenge. Yeah, uh, I can see a 
constitutional challenge to that. I don't know how I would structure it, but I can see that just off the top. Yeah, and, and again, leaving the arbitrariness of 5% aside, if this is the fair thing to do to keep disbursements down, do it across the board for not just all injury litigation, but how about all litigation? If you're suing for a breach of contract, you could only have so much in disbursements. If you're suing for a slip and fall, you could only have so much in recoverable disbursements. If it's fair, it's fair. But if it's not fair, don't make it only apply to the victims of car crashes. That's that's what doesn't really sit well with me and, and makes me suspect it's vulnerable to... Every time a client's in my office and they tell me, that's not fair, I often tell them, not every time, but from time to time I will tell them, well, fair's got nothing to do with it. It's, well, and, and that's often good advice. That's just you know, the sober reality of life. But there's fair and there's unconstitutional, and I think... I think uh, you know, you guys might yeah, the latter, the latter might be a better I, phrase for me to use. I was, I was surprised at the success of the challenge to the last one, frankly, but of course I didn't yeah, read yeah. the legislation um, because it's not my, it's not my zone, not my well, area you know what of they practice. Tried, but. You know what they tried to do, though? They, you know, they said, okay, here's this hard cap, but there's an exception. Uh, opposing counsel could consent to you having more experts, which of course they're not going to do, Never. or yeah. the court could assign their own expert. Now, no judge, you know, our judges are overworked, as you know, no judge is going to want to get involved in assessing whether a plaintiff has adequate expert evidence and deciding that there's a gap, and then themselves retaining an expert to tell the court uh, you know, what they need to know. I mean, it never was going to happen, so it was this empty empty sort of promise of being able to fix the hard cap. And I think the court had no time for it, so they, they swiftly struck it down. Um, here, the, you know, the legislation's drafted a little more prudently in terms of, in terms of uh, counsel could just bring an application seeking leave to have further experts, no different than any kind of chamber's application that's often brought. So, so I think it's a sensible solution that they have there, but it's, you know, they couldn't leave well enough alone, then they and they put this disbursement nonsense on there, and, and I think that's where they're, they're getting a little bit too greedy in their wish list of handicapping the system. Well, it's the, uh, it is the fairness argument, I think, in the, in the ICBC litigation versus other injury litigation that's really going to be the thing that wins the day. I don't yeah. know how you're going to structure it, but that's going to be the thing that wins the day. So who's going who's gonna to back that? Is there any plan at this point, or can you say? Well... Have to see if it passes. You've got to wait to see if it passes. And yeah, but, but yeah, everything passes if the legislature the legislature can sit. I mean, that's the thing about our provincial legislation. It's 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 proposed. It goes to first reading, and then it just goes bang bang, and it's passed. And it was in the middle of that bang bang. Despite point. the fact that we got a minority government, it just yeah, amazes that's... me that it still hasn't changed a damn thing. Yeah, it's just wild, and yeah. and you know, like I say, it was in the middle of that bang bang when when everything hit the fan, and and so who knows what the government's priorities will be when everybody, you know, walks out on the other side of of, of this. Well, yeah, who, those yeah, those of us who managed to walk out the other side. Yeah, I mean, who knows what the legislative priorities are going to be? I imagine they're going to be a hundred percent focused on relief for BC at large in terms of the the virus and its after effects and its economic impact. I don't know that these tweaking of court rules to rig the system for ICBC is going to be their will main they, priority. Will but the NDP still be able to form a government or will they have enough members? Yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows what's so, you know, at a, right at now? A, at a 2 to 5% death rate? 
uh, people Jeez, get, get coronavirus. Dark here. You know, we may not we may not have. Well, I mean, they're only they're only able to form a government with the uh, with the Green Party. So, you know, uh, the BC, the BC, or the, the Canada's death rate seems to be hovering around one percent, which is just remarkable, isn't it? I don't. Well, it's two percent right now in BC. Looking at it, um, yeah. Germany has got a pretty low death rate, but you take a look at uh, at Italy and Spain; it's like seven and fourteen percent. Oh, there's some frightening um, numbers out there in some in some countries. I agree, but Canada, yeah, I, I follow it probably too neurotically for my own me good. Too. Canada, yeah. Canada seems to be uh, you know faring remarkably well in the face of this virus, and, and the country was pretty proactive. So I think. Yeah, I'm just you know hoping uh, that the trend continues. Um, cheering, cheering for everybody to keep doing their good work and isolating and minimizing contact and all that other good stuff to kick this virus's ass. Yep. On that uh, happy virus note, I think we better move on. I do have another guest I've got to call to talk about coronavirus and fevers. Yeah, geez. Uh, He's next. Coronavirus podcast. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's like it was the podcast of doom last week, and it's just the uh, it's going to be the podcast of doom for a while. I think. Call me next month. We'll have some cheerier times, hopefully. Well, we'll see. I've noticed that uh, there's lots of decisions coming out of the court, and it's uh, judges who are apparently sitting at home, and they've got the file (laughs) and the time to write their decisions. So they've uh, got nothing else to do but to put pen to paper and, and write those decisions that have been. Uh, you know, well, I'm glad many of them are remaining focused and, uh, you know, they're getting a paycheck and a lot of people aren't. So the, um, I'd like to see them, uh, continuing to work. It's certainly something that they can do at home. Yeah, well, uh, the lesson is there's always something to do, isn't there? Right. Oh yeah. But for them, they're finding a way to stay busy and I'm glad, I'm glad you are too, Paul. Yeah, I am. And so are you. So we will continue on and, uh, struggle through this. We're resilient people and we have very resilient firms and good staff, and I suspect that we're going to come out of this okay in the end. Nice to talk, Eric. Hey, thanks, Paul. Anytime. Thank you again to Eric McGracken for once again appearing on the Driving Law Podcast and to my co-hostess with the mostest, uh, Paul Doroshenko, for conducting the interview with Eric uh, for me this time. And if you need to reach Eric about any personal injury motor vehicle-related incident or any questions about anything he's said, he's very accessible. You can find him on Twitter, at Eric McGracken, with a K, or online at bc-injury-law. Dot com. Great guy, Eric. Yeah. Uh, we talked guy. for uh, probably 40 minutes before the, <laughs> the podcast about uh, COVID-19 and the implications for the um, practice of law at our offices. Mm-hmm. And uh, I realized we probably could have had the COVID-19 podcast because it was, I mean, I learned a lot talking to him about how it's playing out for him. Of course, I know how it's playing out for us, um, but um, it, was, it was quite useful. Well, good. I'm glad you had that. I'm yeah. glad you had that moment. Yeah, but and it's but it's dark and it gets me down. Dark. It's depressing, and that means we need to bring people what they really come to this podcast for. It's time for the ridiculous driver of the week. <laughs> driver of the week so who do you have for this week okay so this is great do you remember a couple weeks ago where we heard about the guy who was driving in washington state who um who had like the full like like dj setup in his oh yeah in his his truck in his truck in his truck he was driving like a semi-trailer truck and he had like 
the full DJ. He was doing like rapping and, and mixing music as he drove. Yeah, well, I thought for sure you could not top that. That's but like Florida. Year. That's like Florida, Florida level <laughs> in Washington State, just like near nearby. This guy's even better. So he's involved in a high-speed chase um, with police. He's from Lakewood, Washington. I saw And this. he hit two cars, failed to stop both times, and so he started being pursued by state troopers. Um, and was driving really erratically, multiple 911 calls, and they started uh, pursuing him at 109 miles per hour. And one of the, the troopers was pulling up to, you know, to try and pass the guy and sort of cut him off and corner him. When he looked and turned to see not a person driving the seat, but a pit bull. I saw this. I saw this. The dog Hilarious. driving. The dog driving. The, dog. And the guy had an explanation too <laughs> why his dog was driving. He was trying to teach his dog to drive. Yeah. But doesn't he crash? He crashes in the end. He crashes. The dog crashes in the end. Yeah. Anyway, so I, uh, yeah, I did see that, and uh, a couple things caught my eye. Um, the uh, driver appeared to be driving a Buick Regal, and so yep. I just noticed that. Which it's he real. ended up putting in the ditch. He ditched. Um, or the and, dog did. The dog put him. And <laughs> he was arrested, and I think they took the dog to a shelter, and hopefully he's going to get his dog back because I mean you shouldn't be, you know, just because you let your dog drive. Maybe his dog was sober and he wasn't. You know what? Everybody's been saying, let's use this pandemic as an excuse to do all those things we swore we were going to do, but have been putting off, like learning to play the guitar or, you know, learning how to crochet. Writing the sequel to your King dog Lear. how to drive. Yeah, teaching your dog how to drive. Exactly. <laughs> no, I saw that one. And, I'm, I, you know, probably a lot of people are scouring the Internet and saw it as well. Um, but it was uh, it could not have been passed up for the ridiculous driver of the week because no. that really is great. Uh, and there I were know. a lot of contenders, I have to say. There was there quite a few. There was quite a few. I noticed lots of people driving at ridiculously high speeds on the empty roads, the thing that we mm -hmm. had last week. But, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, and time for you to uh, let the listeners know about our next, uh, our next guest on your podcast. Well, our next guest is becoming, I think, our most frequent podcast guest. This, uh, this guest appeared last week as well for a lengthy discussion about uh, breath testing, coronavirus, and everything you wanted to know in between. I can't um, stop but, talking when I get on the phone with him. I have well, to watch No, the, the two of you together is like, a, is like a deadly combination because I both know. of you love to talk. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, it's, a, it's a issues that we like to talk about, too. How, yes. how do you know that we still have passion for our jobs? Yeah, <laughs> the coronavirus hasn't killed that mm, yet. Yeah. Um, so our next guest, obviously, now that we've spoiled it completely, is Jan Seminoff, um, editor-in-chief of Counterpoint Journal um, and uh, forensic scientist extraordinaire. Um, and uh, he's joining Paul to talk about... What are you talking about, Paul? Talking about a couple things. We talk about uh, fever and breath testing, and this is really oh, yeah. something to tune in for. Uh, and he, he expresses his opinion, which I was a little bit surprised uh, about the um, IRP scheme and the testing procedures we have and the manner in which that evidence is put in because he uh, does provide evidence in immediate roadside prohibition. So he's reviewed a lot of reports at this point. Um, he's got concerns. And they're concerns that <laughs> any rational person who knows about this would understand. Would 
if you're yeah. deep into it. It's something that we've had for a long time, and it's kind of reassuring to have somebody who's an independent coming from outside of the scheme looking at it going, holy shit, what have you guys built in BC? Why did you mm -hmm. do this to yourselves? So, Well, I can't wait to listen to the interview with Jan. So without further ado, here is Jan Semenoff. Ray, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm surviving along with everybody else, I guess. So none of us can really complain because we're all in the same boat. It is a first world problem here, yes. Yeah. Well, yes, it is a first world problem, but it's the big equalizer too. So people no around the world are having to face it. I heard uh, in the Philippines the president has given an order to shoot to kill if, uh, if people are not... Uh, uh, abiding by the um, restrictions, and uh, if they put the police in every any risk, so um, I guess uh, we du are... Duarte has never really been known for his moderation. Moderation, has no, he? no, no. And um, <laughs> I, the amazing thing is that uh, that some people support him, and uh, shocks me. Um, the old shoot drug dealer uh, thing is probably uh, kind of contrary to my idea of justice. But what do you want to talk about today? I want to talk about the thing that we didn't finish talking about last week because we, as we've said before, could probably talk a long, long time about a lot of issues. But I want to talk about fever and roadside breath testing because I've had uh, some immediate roadside prohibition calls this week. Uh, and people who were likely positive being tested by the police. And, um, of course, one of the symptoms of uh, having developed COVID-19, as we know from our good friend Kyla Lee, who had it, is a significant fever. Right, and yeah. Fever and breath testing are, in some respects, incompatible. Okay, so so here's, here's the deal. First of all, COVID-19, one of the signs and symptoms that they're describing as being an indicia that you've got that condition, is an elevated body temperature and starts at around 38 degrees now just so everybody knows, 37 is considered the standard body temperature that you've got, um, kind of the normal temperature, but that that should be considered a range. But anytime you get a, you know, a body temperature above about 38 degrees, this is this is an indication that you've got, yeah, I got the COVID. Like All right. 38 and up. 38 and up. Okay. okay. So one degree Celsius, but it, that, that's, that's alarming because there are at least three studies that I am aware of. And in fact, I'm, I'm looking at my stuff online right now. Um, there's two studies done by a researcher named Fox, uh, Glenn Fox, who's a, a doctor and a Dr. Hayward. Yeah. And they did these studies a number of years ago. The Fox and Hayward studies are really interesting because what they did is they've got, um, number one, the effects of hyperthermia, hyper thermia is an elevated body temperature and also the effects of hypothermia which is you know kind of what we're more used to experiencing in canada is hypothermia fever which is cold. a lowered yeah, yeah fever and cold and then there's a jones study that goes back to he cited it in 1982 Ooh, on the effects of temperature so it's been it's been well established over the years that body temperature is a significant factor in breath alcohol results and the Fox and Hayward studies basically show that if you have, um, for each degree Celsius that your breath or body temperature rises over your ordinary range, you see about an 8.6% increase in the reported breath alcohol reading. So um, let's just say that you were truly 100 milligrams and you've truly got a fever, 
you would be 108 milligrams uh-huh. uh, in, in, the, in the reported reading. Uh-huh. And they so did that by not the partition sure. ratio no longer is, is reliable, but your partition right. ratio, it's always your personal partition ratio in any event. But, but basically, well, you're the, just getting an uh, artificially elevated reading. An artificially elevated reading. And they did this by, by putting <clears throat> participants in a, in a hot tub. Um, the, the down and dirty details are that they had anal uh, rectal probes inserted so that they could take body core temperatures. And they That's had these the guys kind. sit in the hot tubs drinking beer. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I don't, I don't mind for that part of the study. I guess I would participate. But I don't know how they found guys to do the hypothermia where they had the rectal, the aforementioned rectal probes inserted. And they were sitting in ice cold water drinking beer. Yikes. Uh, yeah, that's, boy, and you think your summer job for university <laughs> sucked, huh? Yeah, you know, actually, I probably, that may have been a better job than some of the jobs, <laughs> I, some of the jobs I did. <clears throat> and they saw, they saw that when you're, when you were cold, your, your, your reading went down by about 6.8%. So we're looking 7, 8% difference for each degree Celsius. Uh, the Jones study from 1982 talked about the magnitude of the distortion of the body core temperature was very large. Depending on the amount of of fever the person was running, you could see as much as a 23% error. Really? 23% off. So if you're at like 80 milligrams, you might blow 100. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that something? That is really amazing. But I mean, I didn't know it was that far. I heard the the 8%, but yeah, I mean, Jones always goes deeper in his studies, so... Okay. Well, there you go. There you have it. So if you're testing somebody with a fever, you're not getting a reliable test. And, and if you take a look at, you know, British, British Columbia particularly, you're using the Alka sensor of the intoximeter FST, which is a handheld device. It's a fuel cell device. It doesn't have the bells and whistles in it to actually determine these sorts of things. I see on the IRP reports all the time that the cop says something along the lines of, you know, that the unit was in the proper operating temperature. Um, but, but that's about it. Yeah. Uh, they, they never take the breath temperature into account. Well, the temperature is a huge issue for me and has been a huge issue for me for a long time because we noticed with Alcosensor 4s, um, uh, that is the way that I identified that there was a problem with the, with the devices when there's the 2200 new ones that they bought in the summer of 2010 to introduce the, um, the IRP scheme, uh, mm-hmm. that, um, uh, ultimately, I determined it was a problem with the the chip connecting to the socket, but they would they would give you wild wildly divergent temperatures still within the range within the operating range. So you'd have an officer with two devices, and one of them might be at 16 degrees, and the other one, which is also sitting on the on the passenger side of the cruiser, is at at 39 degrees. And <laughs> there's no way, and of course that goes into the programming when calculating the reading. There's no way both of those are correct you don't know which one right. is incorrect um but regardless you're supposed to get two reliable samples and we saw this with some regularity and i kept seeing it in in maintenance receipts so that's the thing that really got me attuned to temperature of course the result was after i exposed that after those devices were pulled uh the government's response was to have the police no longer report what the temperature was so right. instead of instead of you know having something that we could identify the problem uh, and could assist us, so we would know whether or not reliable samples were being taken, they just instructed the police to hide the evidence. 
Right. Well, it's interesting. I actually had um, an inquiry a number of years ago from a public defender in in San Francisco. And she said, you know, typically it's pretty cold here in the Bay Area. It was an unseasonably hot day. It was, I think she said it was 105 degrees. And what what effect would would the ambient temperature now have on that breath reading? And we're not talking about the ambient temperature of the person's breath. We're talking about the ambient temperature now of the unit itself. Yeah, which yeah. is kind of where you're going from. Yeah. yeah. So w- what I did is I concocted an experiment where I took three or four uh, handheld devices, I calibrated them all up at room temperature, and uh, made sure everyone that was you know giving me good range of readings, <clears throat> and then I put some in my wine fridge overnight. It was like eight degrees Celsius. Yeah. And lo and behold, the readings were about thirty percent low than what they should have been when I, you know, did a, uh, a known Standard sample test, from, yeah. a, from a simulator. I'm getting about 30% lower readings. Huh. And then I took those same units and put them in a little hot box that I created and got them up to about 105 degrees, you know, 40 degrees Celsius. Yeah. And uh, lo and behold, they were about 30% higher than they should have been. Uh-huh. So pretty huh. consistent. So that ambient temperature is really, really, really important. Yeah, it's hugely important. It's hugely important. Yeah. The um, I've been uh, I recently took apart a Intox ECIR one and um, just disassembled it. Just wanted to see every little last piece in it because I got enough of them that I could take one apart and never have to worry about right. putting it back together. And yeah. um, there's a little uh, jammed fan in it. Uh, the fan was shot. It was a. I doubt they knew that the fan was shot on it. Um, it's a fan that uh, blows right down through a like a, a nylon special uh, machined piece of nylon. It blows mm-hmm. like a little uh, just a little blower onto some part of the uh, of the uh, sample chamber. And I don't know if it was designed to clear out the sample chamber or to cool that portion of the sample chamber. You know, there's little heaters on there too. Um, and you're thinking to yourself, what happens if you have a small malfunction in any one of those? pieces and it's it's you know it's instructing the device right it's part of the formula to do the calculation uh that it's using is is its understanding of what the temperature is well the the only units that actually do temperature adjustment uh the drager 9510 and the datamaster dmt has got the capability also of doing a temperature adjustment so it'll take a look at the exhaled breath now, for whatever but reason, it's measuring the breath temperature, though, right? Right. Yeah, but there's yeah. a there's an automatic formula formula temperature adjustment in in the devices that tell you the temperature, like the handheld devices. If the device mm-hmm. is at, at ten degrees, it's supposed to give it a different instruction than if it's at forty <clears> degrees. But it's not supposed to be measuring your breath temperature. That's my understanding right. of the formula for the device. It's not me- measuring no, no, breath no, temperature and taking that into account. You're absolutely right. It's two different things. I'm just saying that there, you know, if we, if we get back to when we're talking about breath temperature, there really are a couple of units out there that will make that calculation into take it into account and give a corrected value. But I don't know how accurate that's going to be. Yeah. And I don't know what what algorithm they're using. I mean, are they accepting Fox and Hayward's, you know, six point eight for too low and eight point six for too high? Uh, or are they using Jones's calculations, or, or are they making their own up, kind of splitting the difference? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? And, and that, that kind of gets back to the issue that we've always had with these devices, 
is what what's the source code? What's the programming on them? How do we know that it has been programmed? You know, to give us a certain reading in a certain way. And I hear a lot of things in court all the time. Well, you know, if there's if there's any ambient conditions, it'll subtract that from the reading, and so your client is getting a benefit of a doubt. And I'm kind of like, okay, well, show me the data. Show me show me where hearsay. that's occurring. That's all hearsay every time. Exactly. Every time they come to testify about that, it is just hearsay. And it's it's like the least reliable hearsay. It's like the police officer who testifies that their uh, four-year-old niece can provide a sample. Uh, it's They've never tried it. They've been told that somewhere yeah. along the line. Um, it's a it's just a lie. And it's, it's the worst hearsay. It just drives me insane. Because uh, you get it back from the lab all the time. And the lab is just purely relying on hearsay. It's not something they've never tried. They've never experimented on. <coughs> and it's not even like accepted, uh, accepted uh, scientific principle. They're testifying about a functioning of a device for something they've never tried. Right, but um, it, 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 <laughs> but it's reproducible. It, it's, what we, it's reproducible. Yeah, but it, it, it's 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 what we talked about last week. So when I was taking a look at the ability of an asthmatic to provide a breast sample, and I phoned the manufacturer and I phoned the RCMP. You know, you're you're making this claim that an asthmatic can provide a sample. Where's your data? Well, we don't have any. We just know. Yeah, that's that's not the way science works, folks. Well, it's amazing that uh, it seems to that works certainly for the uh, superintendent of motor vehicles, and has and that does also work in court. Lots of times, the judges will just well, the police officer said that. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> but this kind of now segues into what I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit this week. If we've got a couple more minutes, yeah, yeah, go ahead. The, uh, the concern I'm, you know, I'm getting a lot of files from you and Kyla over the immediate roadside prohibitions, and what I'm seeing is a kind of an alarming reduction in the reliability of the breath test readings, just because of the, the meatball policing that these guys are doing to crank uh, crank a motorist through as quickly as you can. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of files where the time of driving is nine o'clock, the time of the first test is one minute after nine. The time of the second test is three minutes after nine, and the guy is released on his IRP at five minutes after nine. You know, I, I, all the... I call I call the nine o'clock the magic hour because uh, about probably a third of all IRPs start on a rounded number, either the top of the hour or the bottom of the hour, and there's fifty nine, you know, other minutes that they could choose from. Yeah, uh, but it always just happens to be at the top and the bottom, and then it's <clears throat> it's times that would make logical sense in a investigation most of the time. Sometimes they don't. Um, but uh, they just all magically happen. Like, at, you know, 9 o'clock, oh, you know, that was the time of driving. 9.02, oh, form, form the suspicion. 9.03, right. made the demand. 9.05, first sample. 9.10, second sample. You're like, there's no way. It just did not happen that way. But you have no way of proving the opposite. Well... <laughs> The officer should be sitting there with their, I mean, I, when I was a cop, I had my notebook out and I had my watch out and, you know, I, I would make a note that it is, you know, 1645 right now and boom, this falling event happened and then it's 1649 and the next event happened. I mean, it should be reliable data. I just think it's really interesting. Not so much that it starts at exactly nine o'clock. I guess that wasn't my point. But the fact that the entire investigation is only taking five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And... If you take a look at the way breath testing has been predicated since about 1954 when the breathalyzer was first introduced, 
uh, I mean, I'm talking the original Borkin oh, yeah. breathalyzer here. There were a whole bunch of procedures that were set up as checks and balances to make sure that we were getting a somewhat reliable reading. 1927 is the first article I, that speaks about mouth alcohol contaminating breath tests. I've never found right. the article, but I found it referred to in material from the Borkenstein Institute. I've seen that. The, I, like you, I've, I've seen the references, but I've never been able to find the article. Yeah. But I mean, the first, the first, uh, you know, units were coming out in the mid 30s. So breath testing has been around for about 90 years, and they knew that mouth alcohol was a problem. Well, crap! I'm seeing, I'm seeing these files, and there's, there's no indication whatsoever that there's mouth alcohol contamination concerns. I know. And let's just say, for sake of argument. I mean, and here's the argument that I make all the time. Under the criminal code in Canada, you are required to do a 17-minute and 30-second interval between the taking of the two evidentiary samples. And it's, it's more than 15 minutes, but the alcohol test committee said, let's just make that 17 minutes and 30 seconds so the Paul Doroshenko and Kyla Lee's of the world can't argue the accuracy of your watch versus his watch. 15 minutes, yeah. And the 15 minutes, right? So let's make it 17 minutes and 30 seconds. Well... If we're doing a second test under these BCICIRPs, the second test is done sometimes a minute and a half, two minutes apart. No, oh, I know. Typically, no more than 20 minutes. So, the so procedural protections that we've known for 70 years, for decades, are being eliminated. <laughs> yeah. And the, the problem I've got with all of this is that we know for a fact that most alcohol contamination lingers for a minimum of 12 to 15 minutes, maybe as, as long as 30 minutes. Well, so there's a Norway study that's 45 minutes, and I participated right. in a study that was where I was one of the subjects, and it, I think it was over 30 minutes. I can't remember. I think it was 35, but that was oh, about yeah. talking. Um, talking might have reduced it, but uh, you know, the mouth alcohol studies, even the old RCMP material says 20 minutes. Um, right. Material that I've got from the 1980s in my office says 20 minutes. Um, you know, how they magically decided on 15 minutes well, that was fine in the context of using an approved instrument that has a slope detector. Um, we don't even use 15 minutes, oh. uh, and we have no slope detector. We have no way of... Oh. <laughs> well, wait, 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 wait. You've got to understand that, that that 15 minutes between the two readings was set up very conveniently in Canada. But again, if we go back to the old Breathalyzer 900A, which was the only device that was available, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, um, and, and having been trained, by the way, still, I did about still, five still, still in use until the eighties. Right, mm -hmm. I was, I was, I was trained on it, and I used the breathalyzer up until nineteen ninety eight as a cop. Yeah, and uh, and I mean, it took it took probably twelve to fifteen minutes to clear the unit from one test to another, run your standard alcohol solution calibration check through, clear that out, and get all set up and ready to go for the next test. So. You know this 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 wait period between tests was necessitated by the the limitations of the technology. Well, nowadays you just push the button, start over again, and boom, you can do the second test thirty seconds from now. Yeah, yeah. We know that it takes fifteen minutes minimum for the mouth alcohol to clear. Why they're not waiting fifteen minutes between the two tests absolutely confounds me. Yeah. And I think it shocks me. I think it's <laughs> it's revenue production more than anything else. I don't. All these, like I say, the checks and balances that have gone to help preserve the integrity of the breath test process are being totally uh, disregarded. Well, when, yeah. the, when they, the first concept of the IRP scheme, you know, they thought that they would, they would um, 
maintain a lot of procedural protections, right? That was their first thought. But then as the drafting of the legislation, they, they kept thinking, oh, how can we make this easier? How can we make this easier? And ultimately, they got it to being a series of checkboxes um, and, and eliminating those procedural protections. And that was just, you know, not, not because they set out to do that, but then they realized, you know what, if we provide these procedural protections, people are going to succeed in challenging them because they're right. going to see that they've been done wrong. And so they've eliminated procedural protections because they don't want people to succeed, which is the worst thing because people succeed because they're innocent. Like Kyla has argued uh, probably 5,000 IRPs, maybe more. Like on, on many weeks, I think she's probably the only lawyer who's arguing them and she might have 20. Um, but the... Uh, she told me today she did half the half of the IRP hearings in the last week. Yeah, she did. Well, who knows? You know, that's a, and she's sick. <laughs> yeah, um, the um, but the the you know each time she would succeed with something that was really just demonstrating a a problem in the system where the person was innocent. They would just close it rather than recognizing. Okay, you know what? We, we're getting some innocent people in this. They just uh, they just pivot again to try and uh, mm -hmm. to take away rights. It's really disturbing. It's very disturbing. But you know you're preaching to the converted. I know that the the procedure is not reliable, and I've said that for years and and uh, for many of the reasons that you've identified. And obviously you identified it more than I have because you're the expert. But we made well, some we made some errors early on when challenging the scheme because we thought that the court would just see it. And, uh, you know, the lawyers in B.C., when we were getting it together to make these arguments, uh, we just assumed that the court would, would see, oh, you know what, this is a huge problem. But, instead, but they're not because they're not, they're, they're not having to follow the procedures of the criminal code because they're not charging under the auspices of the criminal code. Well, I know, but that was the thing. That was the point. Like, you're not going to be punished as bad, um, and uh, it's not going to be uh, a criminal conviction. But, you know, what goes on your driving record, it's on there, and... Uh, uh, which is basically the same, uh, but it's not going to be a criminal conviction. So therefore, we can reduce the quality of the evidence, and then they just went whole hog, right? They just reduced mm -hmm. the quality of the evidence to complete crap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's where we stand, and uh, I think we should wrap it up on that uh, somewhat Cheery uh, note. dismal note. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got to, uh, I've got to report back to Kyla, let her know how her podcast went, and hopefully, she's well enough to come and actually record the podcast next week. So, time All right. to sign off. Where can people get a hold of you? Uh, the easiest way is uh, hitting Counterpoint Journal, which is counterpoint-journal.com, and you can get my contact information there. Um, during the COVID epidemic, we are allowing access uh, for free for anybody for Volume 2 right now. I saw and that. in a couple of weeks, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to open up for Volume Three. And if God forbid we're <laughs> crunching along, we'll open up for God Volume Four. Um, you, you got some time to learn some science, and you're maybe having to homeschool your kids. Maybe learn a little bit yourself. So take a look at uh, Volume Two. It's all free right now. Any criminal defense lawyer should not be passing this up because it's certainly worthwhile reading. And it's one of those things where every time, you know, the fear is that you read something, you find out, oh, I wish I had known that when I fought that last case. Um, I think I told you that before. It's always sort of right. my nightmare at three in the morning is like, oh, that one case I should have, there's that one thing I didn't know. That's the way it goes. Nobody's perfect. Pobody's nerfect.
All right. Thanks a lot. Nice to talk to you. You too. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. And that is it for Driving Law with Kyla Lee. I am, again, not Kyla Lee. I'm Paul Doroshenko. If you want to get a hold of either myself or Kyla Lee, you can give us a call, 604-685-8889. It's VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank <laughs> you.